we heard from uh, the first speaker that Carta is particularly interested in issues such as where did we come from and how did we get here? And what I would like to talk about today is addressing those questions not from an evolutionary point of view, but from the point of view of developmental science, from the point of view of a young child development, particularly typically developing children and its implications for autism. So what's the issue here? The issue is that while we can look out and see other people move, we don't just see them as dynamic sacks of skin moving across the earth. Rather, we make attributions to them, such as beliefs, desires, intentions, and emotions, that underlie that surface behavior, and we view them as psychological agents just like us. Now, that poses a deep developmental problem. The developmental problem is, while the young infant may process biological movement, may even be attracted to faces in biological movement, you see the, the dynamic sacs of skin moving, but you don't see or even sense these internal states. You don't smell somebody else's beliefs or their desires or their intentions, don't taste them, hear them, or even see them directly. Nonetheless, young children do seem to make attributions about these internal states, and the issue is, as the, in the first talk, how did we get there? How does this come to be? Children don't learn about this in school, and the research in developmental science is showing that it lies even prior to learning language, and in some days may help, or at least interact with, language acquisition in some very, very interesting ways. Now, of course, our fascination with this problem of other minds um, has been captured by artists over the centuries, and this is a Renaissance painting by George de la Tour, which captures the delicate balance between gaze following, intentions, even intentional actions, even deceit. I want to show you here that we see a young nobleman looking into the eyes of a fortune teller, but while he's looking there, this young woman looks at his eyes, and she's doing so for a particular reason, which is depicted in the painting, and you'd notice if you studied it, and that is that he's read, she is trying to cut his gold chain and steal something valuable to him. The young woman on the left is looking down in, at his pocket because she's, he, she is going to pick his pocket, and her confederate is looking at his eyes because she has her hands out to capture the stolen goods after his pocket is picked. So artists for centuries have captured this human drama, the connection between gaze, intention, emotions, even deceit. They do so remarkably on flat two-dimensional canvases, and the art historian Ernst Gombrich talks about us bringing the viewer's share, our psychological attribution to the painting, which gives us great aesthetic pleasure. Developmental psychologists, of course, need to break down what you see in this painting into simpler elements to study it, and gaze following is one of those simpler elements that has been studied by developmental psychologists and people who are interested in development of autism spectrum disorder, such as Simon Baron-Cohen and others. And it turns out that children with uh, autism are very poor, as you know, have impairments in gaze following. I want to talk about the origins of that a little bit. And before I do, I want to show you what, how we test that in de uh, typically developing children. Here is a 12-month-old child in our laboratory sitting face-to-face -face with an adult. The adult turns to the side to look at one object 
and the typically developing 12-month-old looks to the side as if attached by a bungee cord following the gaze of the adult. Very, very interested in following the gaze, which turns out to be informative about another person's intention and how well a child does this at 12 months of age before they start producing words turns out to be predictive of word growth in other studies that we've done. But the puzzle is, gets deeper and even more interesting because typically developing 12-month-olds do this phenomenon of gaze following very subtly. If you turn and look with your eyes open, they will follow your gaze. If you close your eyes and turn to the side, they will not follow the gaze. They treat it just as a random movement, but not that you're psychologically attached to this inter external object because you've cut off the organs of perception. 12-month-olds seem to know a lot about looking and seeing. But they make a very interesting mistake. We did a study where instead of closing their eyes, we blocked off the adult's uh, perception of the external object by using an inanimate object like a wall. But in our study, we used a blindfold, a cloth that we could put over the adult's eyes. And we did a control where we had that same cloth on the forehead. It turned out that 12-month-olds mistakenly followed the gaze of the adult, even though their eyes were covered and they couldn't, the adult couldn't see anything when they turned to the side. So the puzzle is, why would a 12-month-old know not to look when an adult has their eyes closed, but make the mistake of following gaze when the adult's eyes are covered by an inanimate occluder, a blindfold? And the hypothesis we came up with is the child may have had self-experience with their own body of opening and closing their eyes and recognizing the effect that their own agency of opening and closing their eyes has on their own perceptions and could use this information to project and understand somebody else's psychological state if they acted like me, if they did the same movements that the self is doing. Now, this led to an, a training experiment, an intervention experiment, and the intervention was if that kind of hypothesis has any merit, if you give 12-month-olds who don't understand the property of blindfolds massive blindfold experience, they should get better. And we did that study, and what we did is we had objects laid out on the table instead of in front of 12-month-olds, and when they looked at the very interesting object in front of them, we put a blindfold in front of their eyes so they couldn't see it. Then we took it down and they fixated another object. We put a blindfold up in front of their eyes so they couldn't see it. This went on for seven and a half long minutes. But we gave this child experience on their own body that the blindfold blocked their view. And then the adult, for the very first time, wore a blindfold herself and turned to the side. And the research showed that children who had self-experience with blindfold no longer made the mistake of following somebody else with a blindfold. Control infants who are given training with a blindfold with a slit cut out in the middle still made that mistake. They, they gave, gave an experience of the black cloth coming up and down, but they could see through it and didn't have the self-experience that a blindfold blocks their view. So we randomly assigned children to this treatment. Those with self-experience that the blindfold block view now made different attributions to others. And that led us to this like-me hypothesis, which I think plays a role in typically developing children. I'm going to make an argument that it plays a role psychologically. It's helpful for understanding children with autism. And the hypothesis is that self-experience in the typically developing case changes, transforms our understanding of others. When others act like me, they have inner states like me. And this can be a process for developmental change. I want to go forward now. 
to another phenomenon. The other phenomenon is that we don't just look where other people are looking, but we act like other people act. And young children in particular do that. They mix imitation of others with their own innovations. They get ideas from others in the social context and mix it with their own discoveries and own innovation to plan their action. Human infants, typically developing infants, are prolific imitators. Research has shown that there are impairments on imitation in children with autism. Now, the fact that humans are prolific imitators has been of interest for a long time. Aristotle said this, imitation is natural to man from childhood. One of his advantages over the lower animals being this, that he is the most imitative creature in the world and learns at first by, Im by imitation. Aristotle would have been a good member of Carter. He was interested in where we came from and how we got there, and he thought that imitation this coupling that we have with other people, the perception-action loop that is tightly there in typically developing children is important. Imitation is an important social venture for typically developing children because they can learn how to use tools from watching others. They don't have to just independently discover how to use the tools or discover it by trial and error, but can simply use others as proxies, observe what happens in, to social agents in the external world, and apply that to the self, multiplying their learning opportunities, using others as a model for others who are like me as a model for the self, and accelerate learning. Now, we've done many, many studies of imitative learning in young children, and I want to show you a 30-second clip of a typically developing child in my laboratory imitating because you can see the delicate dance between the adult and the child as they are imitating. This was a case where Alan Alda was, came to my lab to do a Nova movie, and we have a little outtake of it that I'll tell you about. Here's a young child. Notice the gaze looking down at the object, up at the person. Down at the object, he puts beads in the cup. The young child doesn't have any linguistic description of what to do. We didn't tell her what to do. She simply watched. Did the same thing and was quite happy with herself. <laughs> then I take a camping cup and I do something unusual. I turn it over squash it with my hand. She looks at the object, the person, the object. <laughs> and she does the same thing, imitating. Now, he pulls apart an object that we built on our lap, pulls it apart. She looks at the person, the object, the person. Good pop. <laughs> then I asked the movie star to do an unusual gesture we've done in my laboratory that we've shown babies imitate, which is to touch this with his forehead. She's never seen such a thing. <laughs> do you want to turn? <laughs> and she does the same thing. The ability to imitate is profoundly important for typical human development, and they are drawn to be like the other person. They see others like me. They want to imitate what we do and become little members of the culture. You can see the exchange of, in looking between the object, the person, the object, to figure out when it's their turn and so forth. 
But imitation does not just begin at one to two years of age. We tested the origins of imitative ability. And some of you may know about this research that we published in Science showing that two to three week old babies, when they see an adult poke out the tongue, will poke out the tongue, open up their mouth, even purse their lips. Babies this young can't act on objects, but nonetheless, they're socially connected to others. After doing this research, I was asked from my, by my colleagues whether this was there innately, whether this was there at the moment of birth. Uh, this study in science was two to three week old, so we went into the hospital and tested in two studies babies that ranged from 36 to, I mean, average 36 months of age, and the oldest child was 72. The youngest was only 42 minutes old at the time of test. I want to show you a picture of a 19-hour-old baby girl wrapped in a hospital blanket where the adult is sitting with a passive face, then does this very strange biological motion of putting out his tongue. The baby looks, eyes converge at the odd biological motion, and she responds with tongue protrusion. The adult opens up his mouth. The baby's eyes again converge, and she responds with mouth opening. So in the typically developing case, there is a fundamental connection between people, a social connection that already exists at birth, where children can recognize, like me, others, and make mappings between the body movements they see and body movements of their own that they can't see themselves make, but they can feel themselves make through proprioception. And our hypothesis is there is a perceptual motor matching ability a cross-modal matching ability that allows the baby to feel their own body movements. Their body movements are not unperceived by them. They're simply unseen by them. They can feel their own movements and make this match between self and other. Now, as I said, there have been many people studying the relation between imitation, uh, imitative development in children uh, with autism. Sally Rogers and many other people have done excellent work. Jerry Dawson and I published a study uh, with Karen Toth in 2006 showing that if you measure imitative uh, responses of young children at uh, four years of age, their growth in social communicative function as measured by uh, Vineland instrument can be predicted by how well they're doing on imitation and some other measures of toy play. Taken jointly, it makes a beautiful prediction of how well these children will be doing on measured by Vineland at six and a half years of age. These were 60 children and published in, uh, in the journal shown. But I want to jump forward now to the fact that we don't, as typically developing human beings, only use gaze and imitation. We also modulate imitation by emotions, by people's uh, emotional reactions to the actions that are performed, that are shown. If we see somebody else in the world react negatively to another person's act, we're loath to imitate that. So we're not just automatic imitation machines. We self-regulate, and that is an interesting brain system in itself. We regulate whether to imitate by what the emotional reaction is. So here we have a study where we're integrating emotions, gaze, and imitation all in one, and I want to tell you about the study. What we had as an adult uh, show an 18-month-old child what to do with an object, in this case use a tool, a stick, to, to push a button to make a sound happen. And then Nina came in, a confederate, and was very angry at the adult. The baby watched wide-eyed, and I want to show you what happens. Look at this. See? 
Here's the 18 Look at this. There. And we know from control studies that the baby wants to imitate this and would tend to, but here comes Nina. Here, I'm going to sit here and read a magazine. Okay. That's Nina. Nina's going to sit and read a magazine. Nina, look at this. That's aggravating. That's so annoying. Oh, I thought it was really interesting. Well, that's just your opinion. It's aggravating. Okay, the 18-month-old was watching wide-eyed at this social interaction. We gave her the tool. <laughs> Wouldn't you love to have a brain measure at this moment to figure out what's happening neurally, something we plan to do? Now, there are two hypotheses about what's going on very briefly. One is the baby might just be shut down because she saw anger, and the other one is she might be able to integrate imitation, gaze, following, and emotions. We think it's the latter. The way we tested this is we had the adult get just as angry at the baby and then leave the room. So the baby had experienced the negative emotion, but the adult wasn't there to watch the baby. And what the 18-month-old baby did just looked to see the adult was out of the room, picked up the stick and did it themselves. So I'm going to skip in the interest of time those slides and just say we are now looking at neural bases and neural correlates of imitation in 14-month-old babies using EEG setup. This is collaborative work with Peter Marshall. So last two slides. The like-me hypothesis is a hypothesis about development, and I think this pathway behaviorally, pathway may be impaired in children with aut uh, autism. I believe to begin with, typically developing infants have an action representation system where there's an intrinsic connection between perception and production of acts. And we're beginning to learn something about the neural basis. But it is manifest by newborn imitation. At the moment of birth, there's a connection between perception and production. Then with experience, babies get first-person experience. They act in the world. And they, they know what their actions are. For instance, they tried to do something and it failed. They can detect their intentions, their own intentions, their internal states, and the behavior that's a manifestation of failing to do something or trying to grasp something. There's a behavior in an internal state. With this first-person experience, they now can recognize others who act like me, others who generate that same behavioral state, and they make an attribution that people who act like me have internal states like me. Now, this is a projection from self to another, a generalization from your own internal states, given a sense of behavior, to somebody else's that may not be uh, intact in children in the same way with children with autism. My final slide is in this science paper published with two scientists uh, down here in San Diego, we talked about a developmental approach for perception, action, coordination, and its implications for uh, atypical development and bringing together multiple disciplines. By looking at how children learn socially, we'll not only know more and learn more about them, but we'll learn more about ourselves, and perhaps we'll be able to address the Carter questions. Thank you.